Well, good morning. Peace be with you. We have an amazing text before us this morning in Matthew. Uh, one writer referred to this parable as the watershed parable. It is the parable of parables because it's really a parable that explains why Jesus taught in parables. And so in that sense, it's fairly unique. It's, this parable is told in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them. And it's one of the few parables where Jesus gives a lengthy explanation of what the parable means. And one of the challenges for us in coming to this text this morning, especially if you grew up in the church or you've been in Bible studies or you've heard this before, the challenge is Jesus has given us the explanation and it's easy for us to just want to jump right there. But if we jump straight to his explanation of the parable and we actually don't just sit with it for a couple of minutes, I think we're going to miss out on something really important. Typically, you come to this and what you do is you go right away, all right, which soil am I? Am I this soil? Am I the, the hard soil or the rocky soil or the thorny soil? But to do that, you miss the, the real weight and freight, the, actually the urgency of this text. Because this is a text where Jesus is saying, you need to listen and you need to hear and you need to do it quickly. There's a clock that's ticking. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this, and we're just going to walk through the text verse by verse. And when we get to the end, I want to draw out a few applications. But what I want to ask you to do is, if you're familiar with this passage, I want you to just do your best to set aside the familiarity, what you know, for just a few minutes so that you can feel the strangeness. Because the strangeness actually really matters. And this was a strange story for the original disciples, the, the original hearers. To get a running start, you know, we read verses one to three, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake and such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Now, if you know anything about Jesus's life and ministry, he always had these crowds following him. And so what he does here is he hops into a boat, pushes out a little bit from shore, and then he begins to teach from the boat so that his voice will carry over the waves to all of the people. And there's massive crowds listening to him. You have to understand too that, that where Jesus is, you could probably look around and see farmers in the field as he's teaching this parable. And so they're all there, eager, waiting to hear what's Jesus have for us. And then he tells them this really bizarre story about what appears to be a really haphazard farmer who goes out and he just starts sowing seed. And he throws some on the path where everyone walks, where seeds would never grow. And then he throws some on the rocky soil where, where nothing ever grows. And then he sees patches of weeds and he just starts throwing them in there. And then he throws some and it lands on good soil. And Jesus says the, the seed that lands on good soil, they kind of explode. It's this, this hundredfold yield. This is like an explosion. It's astronomical. It's almost like a, a fairy tale kind of production of the seed. And so it's this strange parable. The, the farmer's just throwing it around. Most of the place is not doing anything. Where it lands on good soil, it just blows up. And he finishes the story. And if you don't have the explanation, it's like, what is he saying? And then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, this is a bit of a head scratcher. 
And the disciples, they're confused by this story. You can imagine the ones who are there for the Sermon on the Mount, like, you know, such an amazing sermon. Compared to the Sermon on the Mount, this one had to feel a little bit like a dud, didn't it? Like, even Jesus can't preach a good sermon every single week. Like, you know, everyone, everyone has an off Sunday. And they, they ask him, they ask him, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Because they're confused. And to understand their confusion, you have to understand up until this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' teaching has been really fairly straightforward. It's been fairly simple. I'm not saying it's been easy or it hasn't been challenging. I'm saying it's been easy to understand. One of the things you read over and over and over again in the gospels is that people are amazed at Jesus' teaching because he speaks as one who has authority. And the people who are listening, they're blue-collar, uneducated people, but they love Jesus because he speaks in a way that they can understand. He doesn't speak in a way that's only reserved for the seminarians. He speaks in, in everyday language. And he's telling these people about this God who's not cold or distant or detached. He's told them about a God who offers himself as a loving father to all who will receive his message. And then here in chapter 13, if you were to read straight from Matthew 1 to 13, here in chapter 13, everything changes because Jesus, all of a sudden, his teaching isn't clear. He tells them this bizarre story about a farmer. And so the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Some translations would actually say riddles. Why are you speaking in riddles, Jesus? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. So the scene is the disciples pull Jesus aside after he tells the story and they're like, hey, that didn't land well. Like, why are you, no one knows what she meant. What, why are you talking this way? And he says, the secrets have been given to you, but they haven't been given to them. That's a hard passage. That's a hard word. And you got to keep this in context to understand what's going on. And chapter 12, is, it's a turning point chapter in Matthew's gospel as well. Chapter 12, Jesus gets into two knockdown, drag out conflicts with the Pharisees. One, it's because his disciples were walking through a grain field on the Sabbath and they were plucking heads of grain and they were eating it. They didn't like that. The Pharisees said, that's work. That's harvesting. You're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. And then the other is people bring to Jesus this man with a withered hand and the Pharisees are there, and they're waiting to see, are you going to heal? Because for them, healing on the Sabbath is a big no-no. It's not just like, it's not just kind of offensive for them. That, that's a direct violation of the law of God. And so they bring this man with a withered hand to test Jesus, and they're kind of saying, don't you dare heal him. And Jesus is like an obstinate child. No, I'm going to heal him. And they lose it. And the conflict escalates. They eventually start calling him the son of the devil, and in verse 14 of chapter 12, it's the first time that we're told after this encounter, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. And so the first few years people are loving, or the, the, the first, I don't know, 10 chapters of Matthew, people are loving his ministry. Now lines are being drawn in the sand. Now there's a division happening between those who receive Jesus' teaching and are attracted to it and those who are repelled and appalled by it. Now, if you understand the heart of Jesus's message, you'll understand that, that the words of Jesus will always eventually have this effect. 
the words of Jesus, they're divisive. And the reason they're divisive is not just because they're controversial, it's because they're so huge. The claims he makes are so huge. And we get a, a window into what those claims are, even in that verse where he says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you. What are the secrets of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is basically saying, listen, I'm telling you why I'm here and what I'm up to. When Jesus began his ministry in both Matthew and Mark, the first words they record in his public ministry, Jesus said something like this, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is a big concept, but to try to bring it down, what Jesus is saying when he says the kingdom of God is near, he's basically saying, listen, a new administration's in town. Like a new order is coming to this earth. The old order where sin and chaos and darkness and brokenness ruled and reigned, at least as far as we could see, that order is passing away and I'm bringing a new order because I'm the king and I'm bringing my kingdom. And what my kingdom is, it's an order of healing and restoration. It's an order where light is breaking through into darkness. In my kingdom, I'm coming so that those of you who have fractured relationships with God, you can be healed and restored to him. Those of you who have fractured relationships with one another, I'm coming so that those relationships can be restored. And the fractured relationship we all have with this world, where chaos reigns and evil reigns, says, I'm coming to address that as well. I mean, it is a massive claim. Now, I, I, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian at this point. That's good news, isn't it? Like whether you believe it or not, the king of the universe, the claim is at least a good claim. The king of the universe is coming to fix the mess that we made. He's coming to undo the evil. That's good news. That's why... Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news because this is ultimately good news. The challenge is you have to repent. And for a lot of us, repentance, our understanding of that is feel bad or feel miserable for your sin. That's not what Jesus means by repentance. Repentance is so much bigger than that. Repentance is change the direction of your life, of your mind, of your heart, your affections, your energies, He's saying, I know everyone used to be doing this because we were living in a broken world and you just kind of went along with it. I'm here and I'm bringing this new reign and I want you to be a part of it. To be a part of it though, you have to change everything in your life and lay it down to join me. Well, that kind of message, that's always gonna divide people because there's only two responses. It's either absolute, total, unconditional surrender to the king or it's rejection. And man, if you're a religious person whose livelihood, success, standing in society is built upon keeping the old order like the Pharisees, it's gonna be really hard to lay that down to worship him. The words of Jesus, they're filled with such incredible good news, but the hard news is you gotta lay a lot down. And that's why it's always divisive. And that's, that's why Jesus says in Luke 12, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? We would say, yes, right? That's why you came. And he says, no, I came to bring a sword. I came to bring division. Now he ultimately came and he's coming again and he will bring peace. That's the, the end game. But what he's saying he's here is my first time in coming, I'm coming to bring a sword to divide people. 
Now you have to understand all of that to understand why he teaches in parables. Because the reason he teaches in parables, he's saying, I wanna actually accelerate the division between those who bow a knee to me and those who don't. I wanna draw the lines very clearly and I wanna, I wanna make this happen sooner rather than later. Verse 13, Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Now, normally we, we would say, well, why does a speaker use illustrations or stories? It's to make you know, what they're saying easier to comprehend, easier to apply. Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear. And them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. What Jesus is saying here is I teach in parables because they're, not because they're easy to understand, but because they're hard to understand. And in being hard to understand, they accelerate the division between those who worship me and those who don't. You know, Jesus is constantly surrounded by people who are intrigued by him and his miracles, but they're on the fence about whether or not they want to put, him, put themselves under his authority. And so he tells these parables. Now, if, if you realize Jesus is the king of the universe and he tells you something that feels a little like a riddle or cryptic, you're not going to dismiss it. You're going to press in and say, what in the world does this mean? If you're on the fence, if you're one of the people who, you know, you like Jesus as a magician, you don't necessarily want him as your master. You like it when he does the show, but you don't really want him to be your savior. He tells parables, that's when you check out. You say, I don't know, that seems really confusing. He says, I'm teaching in parables because some people's hearts are hard and these parables are actually gonna harden them even more. But then there are other people who they're gonna be intrigued and they're gonna press in and they're gonna to seek to examine. The parables are a filter. The parables are a sword. And I was thinking about Jesus saying this. Uh, I don't know there's any other big Cormac McCarthy fans here. I love Cormac McCarthy. I love his writing. Uh, he wrote The Road and No Country for Old Men. Everything he writes is really good. It's usually kind of dark. Uh, and depressing, but it's really good. But when you read McCarthy, the real challenge is he never uses quotation marks, ever. And so you're reading him, and sometimes there's a dialogue between four or five people, and they're talking, and there's never quotation marks. And so you don't even know who's saying what. You're reading, wait, what's going on? And there are certain sections of his books that I've had to reread 10 or 15 times before I began to understand. But you know what? I remember that dialogue better than any dialogue I've ever read in any book ever. But there are some people, I'll recommend it, McCarthy to them, and they say, I can't, it's just too hard. Like the, the no quotation mark, I can't keep up with it. That's kind of what's happening here, except for it's the words of life from Jesus. It says, I'm gonna teach in riddles. And some people, they're gonna say, I don't know, it's too confusing, let's go grab lunch. Let's turn on the game. And he says, those people, their hearts are already hardened. And it's going to harden, harden them more. Others, they're going to hear and they'll respond. And those people who respond and who press into the parables, who 
who say, what does this actually mean? Jesus says, those people are blessed. Verse 16 and 17, he says, but blessed are your eyes because what did the disciples do when they were confused and challenged? They pressed in, Jesus, what does this mean? And he said, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying it's a blessing and he's, he's intimating that it's a gift to be able to hear. If the parables come to you and you're actually intrigued and you press in and you begin to understand them, Jesus is saying that is a blessing and a gift from God that shouldn't be taken lightly. You should respond and steward it well and press in. And it's here, after he said all of this, that he says, okay, let me explain to you the parable of the sowers, the sower. And in doing so, he's not just saying, what soil are you? What he's really saying is, are you listening? And are you listening with urgency? Because I'm speaking to you. You know, in, in verse 18, Jesus, he doesn't refer to this as the parable of the soils. He says, this is the parable of the sower. Because it's ultimately, how are you going to respond to Jesus when his word comes into your life? Now, the first seed that falls, we're told it, it falls along the path. Uh, it's a footpath, you know, that's been compacted by years of people walking on it. And in the original parable, a bird comes and snatches the seed away. And what Jesus says in his explanation, he says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, it's too hard. It doesn't break in because it's a path. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So Jesus is saying some people, they're going to hear the message and it's never going to pierce them whatsoever. It's never going to break through. You know, for a seed to take root, it has to break through. Or maybe sometimes it just needs a little bit of a covering, like a leaf to come over for a little while. And even then it can begin to let its roots down. Jesus is saying there are some people, they're going to hear the message and not even a leaf of curiosity or doubt or, or question is going to come. Instead, the seed's just going to bounce off of them. And then the evil one, Satan, because he knows how powerful the word of God is, is going to snatch it away as soon as he can before it can take root. Now, there are a lot of people in a lot of churches that would fall in this category. They're people who hear, but they've never really heard. Now, there are people who, who could probably recite a whole lot of Bible verses and maybe be able to even explain the gospel, but it's never actually pierced their heart. It's never taken root. It's all kind of just an intellectual thing. There are some people, they're never going to hear. They're never going to be shaken. The second soil, Jesus says, is different than the first and that the seed actually pierces the soil. The problem is this soil, Jesus, the way he describes it, it's basically like a thin veneer of soil over a layer of limestone. And so the soil is six, eight, 10 inches deep. And so the seed can actually get down in there and it can you know, start to grow roots, but the roots can't grow deep because there's, there's the limestone. And in the original parable, Jesus said, this planet springs up quick and then the sun comes and it scorches it and it dies. And in his explanation, 
He says, the one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution come because of the word, he quickly falls away. The person Jesus is describing here is the person who hears the word of the gospel, who hears what God is up to in this world, and they receive it, and it hits them on an emotional level. They receive it with joy. Like there might be some pain and conviction, but they finally have language to put to this feeling they have that there's something deeply wrong, not just in the world, but in them. And so they, they can confess their sin, but then they also have this joy, like freedom, forgiveness, hope. And their faith sprouts up. And then a day, a week, a month later, something happens and their faith dies and they bail. Like maybe someone mocks them, maybe someone dismisses them for their faith. Maybe Jesus calls them to do something hard. Maybe there's something in their life that needs to be addressed. And Jesus says, if you're gonna be my disciple, you gotta deal with this. And they say, I don't feel like dealing with this. And so they bail. Now, I believe that the overwhelming number of American Christians, the overwhelming number of Americans fall into this category. You know, there was a survey done a few years ago, an in-depth survey by George Barna. 84% of Americans identify as Christians. 84%. Of that 84%, 80% of those people, uh, they don't believe in absolute moral truth. So they don't believe there's actually a right and wrong. They don't believe that the church is an, a necessity. They don't believe that the bride of Christ is a necessity in following Christ. They give less than 1.5% of their money away, not just to churches, but to anything. They don't believe that the Holy Spirit exists and they don't believe in personified evil. So you have this swath of people, 80% of 84%, I can't do that math, but it's a whole lot of Americans who they would identify as Christians, but when you get into just core beliefs about Christianity, they say, yeah, I don't believe that and I don't think that's all that important. Like, what's happening here? Well, what happened is you have a whole bunch of people in America who had some kind of an emotional experience at some point in their life that they tied to Christianity, and they think that makes them Christians. So maybe they, they grew up in a church, and, you know, the church would be very manipulative, and so they would play just as I am and have an altar call, and they wouldn't stop playing it until everyone came forward. You know, the pastor would pray his prayer. I know there's five more people. And he would just keep saying it until five more people came forward and said, I repent, I believe in you, Jesus. Maybe it's the kid who went to the youth group and the pastor said, all right, I want everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads, no peeking. All right. Now, if you don't raise your hand to what I'm about to say, you're going to go to hell and burn there in misery for eternity apart from everyone and everything you love. But if you raise your hand, that means you want to believe in Jesus and you're going to go to heaven when you die with mom and dad and it's going to be wonderful. Eyes closed, head bowed. Who wants to go be with Jesus and mom and dad when you die? I guess I do. Like hell doesn't sound fun. And so you have these people who had some kind of experience and it's like, yeah, yeah, I want that. But it never took root and it's never produced fruit in their life. 
And so they've heard, but they never actually heard. And what Jesus is saying is, that's not the right kind of hearing. And if there's not fruit, that means it's never actually taken root. And sadly, the church has contributed this by those examples I've just given and more. Like this utilitarian, uh, I mean, I heard someone say the other day, they were raised in a church, our job is to win them and then we can leave them. Like, win people to Jesus and then who cares? As if... (laughs) as if the essence of the Christian faith was to get people to to recite a mantra or a prayer or to speak some kind of magic words or spells. You know, if you just pray this prayer, then you're a Christian. Jesus is not so fast. That's the second soil. Then he goes to the third soil. This is the seed that was thrown among the thorns. This, this seed actually hits good soil, but it's surrounded by these weeds. And this one, Jesus says, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, takes root, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. I'll tell you of all the categories, this is the one that scares me the most because the first two groups are clearly not Christians. Like they both die, the plants die. They haven't been transformed by the Holy Spirit. I mean, the majority of them don't even believe he exists, so of course they haven't been transformed by him. This third soil, though, it's harder to tell because they have roots and they have a staying power to them, but their spiritual life is constantly being choked out, and so they're not producing fruit, or maybe they are, but the fruit they are producing is anemic because the weeds are coming in. Jesus says the weeds that are, that are choking the life out, there are two things. There's the worries of this life, which is the literal translation is the anxieties of this age, and then the deceitfulness of wealth. What he's saying is these are the people who hear and they respond, yes, this is true. I want, this, I want to order my life around this. But then the anxieties of this age, the worries of life, everything down to how am I going to get everything done this week that I need to get done, all the way to just... What happens where we, we become only focused on what we see in front of us and we're so focused on this age and the 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years we have left on this earth and we don't think about the billions of years that we're gonna live beyond it. And so all of those worries come in and they start choking it out. And then the other worries, it's, it's the uh, deceitfulness of wealth. It's not a worry actually, it's, it's a lie. And when Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of wealth, what he's saying is money's not gonna solve all your problems. The lie of money is it will. He's saying it's not going to. It's not gonna make you happy. It's not gonna make you feel secure. It's not gonna make you feel content. But we forget that. And so you have the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, they come in and they just suck the life out of the plant. And of all the groups, of all the soils, this one, I think, is the most miserable. Like, if you're going to be in one, this one's the most miserable, and here's why. The first soil, ignorance is bliss. They don't know the difference. It's like, I just like to drink beer and watch football. Who cares, okay? They're happy and content with it. The second soil, they were joyful when they got the word, and then when it got hard, they said, this isn't fun anymore. I want to go back and live a life that's fun, and they abandon it. This third group, though, They stick around, but they live a life that's just perpetually divided. And that's a miserable thing. The heart's divided. Your life's divided. 
It's a really miserable thing to try to serve two different masters or put two things first in your life. And so I see this with people who are, who are stuck in a habitual sin. When I say habitual sin, I don't mean just a sin you fell into, you repented of, and you move forward. I'm talking about a sin that, you, like it entered in your life and you kind of carved out a space for it, made it feel at home. Those people are miserable because they want the, the fleeting joy that the sin, sin brings, but they know too much. They also know that that fleeting joy, it's also robbing them of life. And so they're miserable. People who know like there is a greater truth beyond the little time we have on this earth, but then spend their entire lives obsessed with the things of this earth. Like that's a miserable place to be. All the things they choke it out. There's no fruit in their life. And their faith grows stale and they stick around. And are they believers? Are they not? I don't know. But it's not good. <laughs> Like you don't want to be there. And so he lays the first three out and the disciples, they got to be slack-jawed at this point because they're thinking, Jesus, you've got, you do miracles and they're amazing. Like all we have to do is get you to do more and everyone's going to believe. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand people's hearts. People are calloused. They might act like they want me. They don't actually want me. They want to stay in control of their life. You know, if you talk to, Professional therapists or counselors, they'll tell you the hardest people to help are those who can't see it and won't hear it. Those who can't see what's wrong with them and refuse to listen to other people when they say, hey, this is a real problem in your life. And Jesus, when he's laying these things out, he's saying, listen, that's where the majority of people are. They can't see it and they won't hear it. They just won't listen. And it's really kind of, weighty and a little depressing, but he doesn't end there. He's telling his disciples, it's going to be hard, but there's also, there's some good news. You know why? Because there's a fourth soil. And he said, this fourth soil, it's the good soil. That's all it's referred to. Verse 23, the one who received the seed that fell on the good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. You know, it, it's interesting, the good soil is the one with the briefest description. All the bad soils, he goes in at length explaining why they're bad. You know what makes the good soil good? It's the person who hears and understands the word of God. When God speaks, they listen and they seek to understand it. I mean, there's a beautiful simplicity to being a fruitful Christian. There's a beautiful simplicity of the Christian life here that you hear and you understand. Now, in saying it's simple, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's not all that complicated. And what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples and anyone who will listen is, if you want to experience life in my kingdom, you got to hear and you got to understand. So the three things I want to leave you with, number one, first thing is, Jesus, in this text, he's calling us to put ourselves under his word. He's calling you to put yourself under his word. 17 times in the verses we've read, Jesus uses the word here. Over here, 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 here. Listen, here, here, again and again. He's trying to tell us something. 
Are you listening? The question is not, which soil are you in? I mean, that's a good question to ask. The real question is, are you listening? Are you hearing? Are you seeking to understand? When there's something confusing, do you press in or do you write it off and dismiss it? But it's not enough just to hear and understand because Jesus is not like calculus where you just study it from a distance and study him from a distance. Like he teaches us to train us in what it means to belong to his kingdom. And so you need to understand his word, but you also then need to stand under it. You need to let it rule over you. It's not enough just to understand it. You have to stand under it. You have to put yourself under the whole counsel of his word, which means his commands and also his consolations, his warnings and, and his promises. You know, and there are some people, the legalists and a lot of people who, you know, we would probably classify as fundamentalists, they love to put themselves, even more they like to put other people under the commands and warnings. They don't give a whole lot of thought to the promises and consolations. And so if you just put yourself under the commands and warnings, what happens? Like, well, maybe you, you become arrogant because you think you follow it. More often than not, it kind of leads to just this spiritual life that's lacking joy or hope or peace or goodness. The only fruit of it is either arrogance or depression. And, and people don't like being around you, right? Like if all you do is go around and tell everyone everything they're doing wrong and all the commands and how they're always falling short, like that's not bringing life, it's bringing death. That's why so many people that are the most religious are the hardest people to be around because they just have this air of death about them. Now on the other end of the spectrum, we have some people that are all about the promises and consolations, but they don't care so much about the warnings and the commands. And you can't go that route either. You go that route... <laughs> You end, up, you end up with a God of your imagination because you're saying, I'm going to take all the good things that he says that I like and we'll just disregard all the hard things. To put yourself under the word, it means you hold them both. You hold the great promises. I'm with you always till the very end of the age. You hold the promises where, where Jesus says, you don't need to be afraid. You hold the promises that say there's no condemnation. You hold the promise there's peace with God. But then you also hold the commands and the calls to forgive, to love, to let no, no root of bitterness grow in you. To If you have sin that's, and temptation that, that's causing you to sin, things leading you to sin, you cut them off. Cut off your right hand, gouge out your right eye. You have a ruthless approach to sin in your life, but you hold them both together. And most people, they just can't do that. Jesus is saying, if you want to have a fruitful life, you got to be able to do that. You heed the warnings. You also cling to the promises. In verse 12, Jesus has this kind of cryptic statement. He says, whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. I quoted the ver this verse entirely out of context to my daughter this week. And I said, you know, the Bible says this. And she said, well, that's not fair. And I was like, you're right. In this situation, it's not fair. In the situation I had with her. Because you read this and at first it seems like, Jesus is saying, listen, the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to get poorer. But that is kind of what he's saying. He's just saying, those who want to listen and press in, like they're going to hear more and more. Those whose hearts have grown cold and hard, they're going to hear less and less. So press in. That's the implication. Examine your life. Like I want to ask you, what parts of your life right now are not under the word? 
like what sins in your life are, are remaining unchecked, what callings that he's, he's calling you to step into that you're not listening to. All of us are putting ourselves under the authority of something. Jesus has put it under my word. Number two, you have to persevere through hardship. Jesus warns us in this text very clearly that in following him, when you put yourself under the word, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be persecution. Putting your life under his word, letting his word direct you, means you're going to be at odds with a whole lot of people in this world. Because our world has gone crazy. People believe the strangest things. And what they believe changes all the time. And Jesus is saying, no, build your life on a rock that doesn't move. It's a timeless truth. But in these times, it's going to be seen as strange. You've got to persevere through that. You've got to persevere through when the word brings trouble to you and stirs things up. You've got to persevere through all of the weeds. Even in the good soil, it's not like the good soil never had any weeds in it. He's saying, don't let the weeds win. Don't let things... I'm, Maybe someone has figured out, I don't know how to completely rid myself of the anxieties of this age. Like, I have an anxiety disorder. I have five kids and a wife. I have a job that, you know, I'm carrying a lot. I don't know how to just not worry about any of that stuff. Like, there's always going to be some of it. The question, is that going to choke out? Is it going to choke the life out? Like, what do, you, what do you do with that? And the thing about weeds is they always tend to win, don't they? Like, I care about having a good-looking lawn, and never does the grass push the weeds out, unfortunately. Like, I try, it never does. You know why? Because the weeds, they grow faster. You know why they grow faster? Because the roots don't go very deep. The, the roots of weeds grow very shallow. And so if you're going to have a heart that's not crowded out, the weeds of, of the worries of this world and money don't crowd it out, that means you got to get... The word of God, it has to go deeper than those weeds. The first three soils, that's the one thing they all have in common. The, the seed didn't go deep enough. And so the way you persevere through hardship is you say, I'm going to work this down deep in my life. I'm going to wrestle through it. I'm going to struggle with it. I'm going to come to hard passages and I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to sit with this for a month if I have to because I want to work it in deep into my life. Put yourself under the word. Persevere through the hardship. And then lastly, be patient. Be patient. I mean, this text, it's a warning text, but it's also a text filled with wonderful promises. It says, if you do that, if you put yourself under the word as best you can, I'm not talking about moral perfection. I am talking about submitting. When Jesus tells you to do something, you say, all right, what do I need to do to obey? And when you persevere, Jesus holds forth this promise, you're going to have abundant fruit in your life. What is that fruit? Well, I think it's the fruit of the Spirit. I think it's the fruit that you blessing other people and bringing other people into the kingdom through your life and through your words. I think the ultimate fruit is you're going to be formed more into the image of Christ. The fruit Jesus wants to produce in you, he wants to make you more like him. And this is something that the church has just missed out on for so long. Holiness is spoken of. You have to obey these rules or you don't get to get, get into heaven when you die. That's, that's not the point. Like Jesus gives the commands and the warnings in his word because he's saying, listen, I want you, he's like a dad with a son. I want you to grow up and be more like me. I want you to be a person filled with tremendous courage 
who's willing to stand up to religious bullies, willing to stand up to people who hold forth absurd truths in the world. I want you to have incredible courage to stand up for the people who can't stand up for themselves, but I also want you to be filled with tremendous compassion. Most people, you either have the courage without the compassion, which isn't courage, you turn into a bully, or you have the compassion without the courage and, and you don't know how to say hard things. Jesus is saying, I want you to be both of those things. I'm gonna form that in you. We could go on and on. I want you to be like me. It's a great promise. It just takes time. And that's where the metaphor is really important. It's a seed. It takes time for seeds to turn into trees. Isaiah 61, there's this prophecy where the Lord talks about his people. He says, there'll be oaks of righteousness. I love that image. Acorn doesn't become an oak overnight. And you can't microwave an acorn to turn it into an oak tree. You can't do it. And so, you know, in Luke's uh, recounting of this parable, he actually says, bear fruit with patience. Like this fourth person, they need to bear fruit with patience. And I would say the reason we don't see more radical change in the lives of Christians, the reason the American church seems to lack so much power, the reason so many people who identify themselves as Christians in America seem to be stuck in a perpetual spiritual adolescence is because we don't understand the power of a long obedience in the same direction. Like we don't have a stick to If you're reading something and it's hard, you just stop. Like we... <laughs> we come up against something hard, or maybe you're reading the Bible and the first time you read it, you're like, you know what, I'm gonna actually start reading the Bible. And the first day you read it, it's hard, but you, you remember something and then you can quote it later that day and you're like, I like reading the Bible. That made me sound smart and spiritual. And then the second day it happens again and the third day you read it and it's just confusing and frustrating and maybe even discouraging and you don't have anything to quote. And you're like, I don't know if it's worth reading the Bible anymore. And so you bail, we bail, we don't stick it out. I heard someone say, I've heard a lot of people say this. I don't know who it originates with. They say, most people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. We overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and we drastically underestimate what we can do in a decade. I'll just give you one example in the spiritual life. I know some of you were like, this year I'm gonna read through the entire Bible in a year. I'm committed to it. You're excited. And then I don't know, a week or two ago, you hit, like all scriptures, God breathed and useful. It doesn't mean that it's all as engaging and entertaining. And a week or two ago, you, you hit like 10 chapters where the Lord's talking about the, the layout and dimensions of his temple. And you're like, this is, I can't do this anymore. And you checked out. Like instead of saying, I'm gonna read and learn the whole Bible in a year, which is great if you can do that. What would it look like for you to say, I'm gonna read the Bible four times a week for the next 10 years? Who would you become? But we don't think like that. We don't think in decades. Like we think in minutes and hours. And then we wonder why we don't see fruit. The good thing about this patience piece, like, and, and maybe this is where a lot of us miss it. We can bear fruit with patience. We can, we can put ourselves to this work and we don't, we don't see fruit right away. That's okay because we're not saved by our fruit. Like we're saved by Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't save us because we produce enough fruit. He's like, all right, I'm going to keep that tree. No, the fruit comes because he has saved us. And so that enables us to say, I'm going to put myself under your word. When I fall, I'm going to say, I failed, but I'm turning back and let's move forward. So we come to the Lord's table. We're reminded that even though Jesus says very hard things to us, he did something much harder for us. He offered his body to be a sacrifice for us. He gave his blood to cover and cleanse us from our sins. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let us be reminded of what he's done for us, how he gave everything for us. And let us use that to to ask hard questions and say, we can be honest and we can examine where we need to grow because Jesus has done everything to bring us into his family. That means we can live a life of honesty and hope and hopefully fruitfulness. Let me pray.